Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa Podcast. In this episode, we present the second part of Rosemary Creel's lecture, The Cotton Road. The talk was given as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium and was recorded live on October 24th, 2007. In part two, Rosemary Krill will explore the trade in cottons that took place with Western markets and the craze for chintz, which combined British, Indian, and even Chinese elements into an exotic hybrid. Now, let's look a bit more closely at the trade with the, uh, with the West. Um, as I mentioned, the Portuguese were the first Europeans to come to India. Vasco da Gama made his famous voyage to India by sea in 1498. And very soon after that, the Portuguese set up trading posts. And uh, one of the first things that they started to send back, as well as wonderful woodwork and mother-of-pearl inlaid chests and things like that, all made to Portuguese uh, forms but done by Indian craftsmen, one of the first other things were these uh, wonderful embroideries. Um, These are just details. They tend to be very large, but I've just shown details to show the two main different types Oh, the top one um, is of a sort of, the background is left plain and the design is done in a sort of running stitch. The bottom one, um, the design is done in a sort of much denser, often a chain stitch, and the background is sort of textured by little running stitches. Um, the sort of yellowy colour um, that you see here is tussa silk. Um, which is, of course, what Bengal was, was famous for. It's the natural-coloured brownish silk of the region. And that, it doesn't take dye very well. And that's why uh, most of these um, Portuguese market embroideries are rather sort of mon- monochrome in this sort of yellowish-brown uh, colour. Several of them were made specifically for Portuguese families, so you quite often find them with uh, coats of arms or um, biblical stories or scenes from from myth, like the labors of Hercules or something like that, or others just like the one, um, the detail on the right is just um, a sort of a generic uh, hunting scene showing Western Western hunters shooting shooting creatures. I hope you can see this one. It's a beautiful piece, but it's, as I said, it was you know they're very they're very monochrome. You don't get that sort of vivid um, contrast of colours that you get in so many other Indian textiles. This is just the tussa silk on a cotton ground, and again you can see the uh, Western style figures wearing Western dress, uh, hunting, and wonderful sort of lions with arrows and so on. Um, Now, as I mentioned, the Portuguese were thrown out of Hooghly in Bengal in 1630, so that's a sort of rather useful cut-off date for when these were were probably made. Now, when the the British East India came along in 1600, they also did not lose any time in starting to um, send textiles back from from India to Britain. These are um, embroideries done by that same mochi community that we saw um, in the the Mughal piece a few slides ago. But this is done probably in the late 17th century, obviously very much to Western taste. Now, how, how did this happen? We know that by about 1640, the East India Company were sending out actual designs of uh, textiles to be copied in India. And these sometimes were copied faithfully, sometimes they underwent a sort of wonderful amalgamation at the hands of the Indian craftsmen. 
And this, while it owes something to uh, Jacobean cruel work embroidery, has undergone just such a transformation. It's become something very exotic and wonderful. And it also shows up the amazing um, dyeing skills of um, the time. The very, very dark blue is, of course, indigo, but re-dyed and re-dyed to get that really deep um, blue. And the pink, the bright pink, is achieved by a mixture of lac dyeing and uh, madder. Sometimes the embroideries were part of a, um, a set of bed hangings which could combine embroidery and uh, painted cotton or chintz. And this is just such a, a, a situation where on the left you've got an embroidered hanging with these wonderful sort of exotic trees growing out of this uh, rockery uh, in the bottom. Uh, and on the right is the painted cotton or chintz version. Perhaps I should just say a word about the word chintz. It's, it comes, it's an anglicization of a Dutch form of an Indian word which um, originally meant to sort of sprinkle or spatter, uh, which is not what you might think um, would apply to such a beautifully hand um, and finished cloth, but this seems to be, seems to be the etymology. Everyone seems to, seems to agree. When I ask Indian friends, what does chint mean to you? They, they always make this, this gesture. It's sprinkling. And some, some chintzes do have this sort of sprinkled color in the background, so it's possible that um, that, that, that was uh, their origin rather than a very fine uh, painting. So here we've got a, um, a parallel embroidered, embroidered and chintz design, which is logistically remarkable when you consider that the embroidery was done in Gujarat in northwest India, then the chintz was done on the Coromandel coast in southeast India. So obviously a design, in fact this design, was sent to both places to be copied. The, the black and white picture on the bottom is of a, an English cruel work embroidery um, in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And there's a, in fact, there's another piece in um, the Burrell Collection in Glasgow. But you can see that it must have been either the, the model for the chintz above or perhaps they both came from, a, from another common source. But certainly they, the chintz is very close with this, um, for example, this little... The, it's reversed, so there must be... Um, there must have been a, a tracing at some stage. So here we have this little man looking out here, and here he is looking out here, for example. And these sort of large, rather typical uh, English Jacobean sort of flowers have become rather more uh, exotic in the, in the chintz. I just thought I'd also show you, um, just to make clear what an amazing difference it would have made to have um, painted cottons come into your life at the beginning of the 17th century in, in England. Um, on the left is an English cruel work uh, embroidered flower. On the, on the right, um, an early 18th century painted cotton or chintz. Now, at the beginning of the uh, 17th century, when the East India Company was, was set up, no one in Europe really had cotton. There was a little bit of cotton grown in Italy, but no one in Britain, you would, for example, would use it as a, um, a normal thing in their lives. Linen was the usual um, thing for dress, or wool, of course. Silk from France or Italy, if you were very rich. But something as light 
and fine and washable as cotton was not known. So not only did this new fabric introduce a whole new feeling to what you wore and what you furnished your house with, which was before this very sort of heavy a twill ground with heavy woolen embroidery, so quite a chunky fabric. So you can imagine the feeling of relief when this very light and beautifully coloured Indian stuff came along. Everyone went absolutely wild. Um, the other thing about the chintz was that the actual patterning of fabrics was very well, basic, I suppose, in Europe at that time, unless you were rich enough to have a, an elaborately woven design, the most you were going to get was either an embroidery of rather coarse nature or um, a block print which would not be fast. It couldn't be washed. As I said right at the beginning, um, these dyes were not, the dyes that were used in Britain were not very fast. They had indigo in the form of woad, which was not as strong as the, the Indian indigo. They had madder, but although these things you know, worked quite well on wool, it, there wasn't a very wide range of um, patterned textiles. So for the first time, really sort of elaborately patterned uh, designs were available to people who had never normally had them. This is just an illustration of the sort of difference between the very sort of thick and of course the other the other thing um, about wall hangings uh, were normally heavy tapestries made of wool and suddenly these chintz uh, hangings appeared which completely changed the way uh, an interior would have looked. By about the 1640s the British were showing serious interest in chintz as it were in its own right. When the East India Company first arrived in India They'd been interested in Indian textiles only for one reason, and that was to sell them in Indonesia to get spices. The Indonesians only wanted Indian textiles in exchange for their spices. The British wanted pepper. They wanted nutmeg. They wanted cardamom or whatever. And they could only buy them with Indian textiles, which they attempted to do. It was only in about 1619 or so that someone thought, well, actually, these are quite these are quite interesting. Don't you think they might be able to sell at home? And so by about 1618, um, Indian chintzes, or as they were then called, they were called by the Portuguese name, Pintado, were actually um, on sale in, in London for the first time. This is the same um, hanging that we saw before, and I just, again, wanted to contrast it with a, a cruel work bed. Um, this is an English cruel work bed on the right um, in a house called Coat Heel in England. And this is the, a very typical sort of um, bed uh, set with um, these sort of tree forms coming out of the rockery at the bottom. So this is exactly what this was replicating and used to, um, to exchange the cruel work for, for chintz. And this, I must apologize for this extremely bad photo, but it's the only one I've ever seen of this bed. This belonged to Prince Eugene of Savoie, um, and he had his bed hung with this uh, set. It's the same uh, design um, of chintz hangings, and he was obviously in the sort of forefront of, um, of fashion in, at the end of the, of the 17th century. Now, trees um, were really the sort of main design for chintzes for the Western market right from the beginning. Some people like to call them tree of life. I don't. I think they're just trees. 
now there was there was already a fashion for what was called branched hangings in England by the mid 17th century and I have a little quotation here that says there there is a great practice of printing large branches for hangings in rooms and we do believe that some of our calicos painted after this manner might vent well and therefore have sent you some patterns so obviously this is a sort of thing that uh, was being sent out in order to decorate rooms um, at the beginning of the 18th century or the late 17th. Very beautiful, um, very sort of um, hybrid taste with a little bit of sort of Chinese in there, a little bit of English. So this was at the beginning of the whole taste for chinoiserie that was really going to hit Europe in the 18th century when people didn't know the difference between Chinese and Japanese or Indian and they would call Chinese wallpaper Indian wallpaper. They would call Japanese lacquer Indian work. They were, it was all just exotic. And so all this fed into a very sort of um, hybrid style. The Dutch were very fond of big chunky flowers this the one on the left this is a what's called a, a, a palampore uh, or hanging and this it's massive it must be i don't know 15 feet high so this huge tree uh, in the center is very much to the dutch taste as is the border with these very beautiful simple flowers in a sort of meander which you see on dutch uh, Batavian or Javanese colonial furniture of the time and also silver work. So it's all part of a sort of trend in Dutch and British interiors of the time. The one on the right was also probably made under Dutch patronage, maybe for use in Sri Lanka. It's a little bit smaller um, and we found some, some pieces in Sri Lanka that correspond to that sort of size. The Dutch were also very fond of pink and red grounds for their chintzes, like this piece um, on the left. There are some splendid um, remarks by the British East India Company representatives in India saying, oh, the Dutch um, have taken all the red cloths. Um, you know, we, we are left with the white ones, but you know, the, the Dutch obviously really liked this pink or red background. Uh, on the right is a reconstruction of a, um, a Dutch interior of the of the 18th century, and you can see the um, pink ground chintz hangings on the on the walls. These would have been mounted on uh, battens and sort of put like panels on the wall. And it's interesting that it's sort of in tandem with uh, this is a you can hardly see it, but it's a tapestry, and of course the woolen tapestry was very much on the way out at this time. Um, chintzes were, were taking over. Chinese elements were incredibly popular too, um, again, as a part of this whole chinoiserie uh, trend. And so we have um, you know, these, these Chinese, Chinese ladies based on famous um, Chinese sets of beauties um, which were um, collected as, as paintings. And on the right, all the border is made up of these sort of chinoiserie uh, baskets of flowers, which are like something off a, um, a piece of Chinese um, enamel. So furnishings and bed, bed, bed hangings and wall hangings and curtains were really what were the first uh, demands for chintzes. For example, in 1663, we know that Samuel Pepys bought some chintz to line his wife's study, which must have looked very, very beautiful. But there were other earlier uh, types of chintz. For example, this 
this curious thing, which has been adapted into a sort of bed cover, in the centre has the royal coat of arms of the House of Stuart. So it's probably made with reference to Charles II in the sort of middle of the 17th century. It's got these lovely pineapples on two sides. The pineapple was introduced into Britain, I think, in about 1640. So um, it can't, can't be earlier than that. And Maybe it's even a reference to you know, the amazing new, new fruit. But again, you can see the sort of very Chinesey uh, style of a lot of these creatures used in this in this bedspread. Oh, here's the pineapple bigger. So quite a hybrid uh, piece. The French, who didn't have so much of a, um, a chintz fetish as did the British and the Dutch, but they also um, bought into it to a certain extent. But they went for a rather more sort of classical style, like the piece on the left, which is just a detail of a large hanging derived from patterns made by Jean Berin, who was the uh, court designer at Versailles under Louis the Fourteenth, um, And he made these very sort of classical rather stiff designs which were obviously sent out to India to be copied as chintz uh, for the French market. And on the right is another of these very big scale Dutch pieces with these massive um, uh, palmettes. This one is rather interesting because it's quilted but probably used as a wall hanging rather than as a bed cover. We know that uh, quilted wall hangings were quite popular just partly because um, there are letters saying please don't send us any more quilted wall hangings. We, we want the thin ones. So obviously the, um, the quilted ones were perhaps seen as a, a, a more appropriate um, exchange for heavy uh, tapestries. Now dress, uh, chintz dress um, became popular um, around the end of the 17th century. Uh, first in Holland, uh, in 1683, the East India Company uh, writes um, that chintz is the wear of gentlewomen in Holland, and, but they're trying to sort of raise its status in, in Britain. And so they ask, please send us chintz lengths of better quality. And they say 200,000 of all sorts will not be too much. I mean, this is a really huge amount of stuff. And, of course, it should also be remembered that while what we think of as Indian cotton imports are these beautiful hand-painted chintzes, millions of pieces of far more ordinary stuff is what the bread and butter of the company was. Plain cottons or striped cottons or checked cottons for sheets, for underwear, for shirts, just for everyday use. And this is just the, the very sort of elite um, end. So evidently that demand of 1683 worked because by 1687, chintz had also become the fashion in, U in Britain for ladies of the greatest quality. And they even would wear chintz on the outside of their dresses, but in order to show that they, ha they had plenty of money and they could afford it, they would line their chintz with silk or even velvet or sometimes even cloth of gold. So because this was so fashionable, they wanted to put it on the outside. But unfortunately, it, it was a bit cheap. It wasn't as expensive as these wonderful French and Italian um, silks. So, but they, they wanted to make it, cl make it uh, clear that they, they could afford the um, expensive materials and also to give that wonderful rustle of, um, of silk. 
Um, so this was all partly as a result of a sort of public relations campaign that the East India Company um, embarked on very aggressively to market chintz um, in around the 1680s. They even sent um, chintz garments out to fashionable people, including the king himself, who deigned to appear in a, um, an Indian-style waistcoat at one, at one point. And in 1688... Um, Dutch fashions, and as I mentioned, um, chintz dress took on, uh, took, uh, what's the expression, took off first in, in Holland. Dutch fashions were very much given a boost in Britain when um, the Dutch monarchs William and Mary came to the throne um, in 1688. So it was becoming hugely popular. And in 1694, the East India Company um, representative writes, you can never send us too many chintzes. So, of course, this led to um, terrible anguish amongst the local uh, weavers um, in, in Britain, and chintz was actually prohibited. It was banned. Um, it was banned in Britain in 1700, although the law that banned it had very little effect because um, it was supposedly it was okay to bring chintz in if you were then going to re-export it for example, to another of the colonies, to Africa or somewhere like that. So what would happen would be that the chintzes would come in and the customs man would say, okay, yes, where's it going? And the captain of the ship would say, oh, we're going off tomorrow to West Africa or America. And they would, in fact, go round the corner to Kent and unload their chintzes. And all these fashionable ladies would go down to Deal in Kent and buy prohibited chintzes. It was obviously a huge, you know bit of a thrill for these, these ladies. <laughs> so then uh, laws were, were passed trying to force people to wear British wool for six months of the year or to, they, they forbade servants from wearing cotton caps. They tried everything. They, they, um, they passed a law saying you had to be buried in a British woolen shroud. But, of course, people wouldn't be dictated to. Once, once they'd got the taste for cotton, it wouldn't be denied, as it were. So another act was brought in in 1720, which also forbade the use of it. But um, it obviously had very little effect because most of the chintzes that survive, in fact, are from the period of prohibition. And there are dramatic scenes in about 1719 leading up to this second act there were massive mobs of weavers because, of course, it was the linen and wool weavers whose livelihood was at stake. They marched on the House of Commons. Some, something like 6,000 weavers marched on the House of Commons demanding that this Indian um, cotton be outlawed. And they would uh, physically tear chintz dresses off people's backs if they saw them in the street. So, I mean, you know, we think of textiles as a rather sort of gentle, nice... Uh, thing to be interested in, but it really was a huge political issue um, at the time because people's very livelihoods were, were at stake. So just a few more examples of chintz uh, dress. Uh, on the left, um, this, this monochrome sort of black on white was for mourning. Um, there are other uh, black on white uh, dresses. And on the right, this rather beautiful um, floral skirt with its the top is, is unpatterned because obviously you're going to be wearing a jacket over it. Now, 
we've heard that ladies of the greatest quality or whatever were wearing chintzes, but one of the main things that people didn't like about chintzes was that um, people of all classes of society could afford it, and also that um, ladies of the greatest quality would pass on their chintzes to their servants um, who wore it as special wear. So people going around great houses complained that you can no longer tell who's the mistress and who's the servant because they're all wearing chintzes. Even the queen herself, Queen Caroline, was uh, wearing chintzes. And as Daniel Defoe, the author Daniel Defoe, one of the greatest opponents of chintz, one of the greatest defendants of the uh, English weavers, put it, um, you know, who would have thought that this stuff that was once um, on the beds is now on the back of our queen, and isn't this a disgrace that everybody's wearing this, uh, this Indian stuff? Oh, here are just two jackets of the type that would have been um, worn over the skirts. You can see that some of this is quite sort of large scale, partly because uh, as the chintz dress became more fashionable, the furnishings were often cut down and made into clothing. So you can see that it would, it would have been an extraordinary thing suddenly to have people walking around in what was previously bed hangings. It must have been a huge shock. Now, men, of course, were not exempt from the chintz craze. Samuel Pepys again, um, in 1661, he bought himself a chintz gown. And in 1670, Molière wrote in uh, Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme that um, he has um, his, his gentilhomme um, saying, oh, I must get myself an, an Andienne, as they were called in France, uh, as his tailor. My tailor tells me it's what people of quality wear in the mornings. And of course, the, the chintz was a was still a rather informal um, material. Whether it was furnishings uh, in which the, it would be used in minor bedrooms, dressing rooms, whereas the very important bedrooms would still be got up with amazing French and Italian silks, or of dress, chintz dress was usually worn at home or in the mornings. You wouldn't necessarily go out to a great uh, ball wearing your, your chintz dress. It's very much a sort of informal uh, but very fashionable thing. They were called, now these are called banyans in England because of a sort of misguided um, uh, misunderstanding of uh, the word banya, which is just a, a sort of merchant in India. The East India Company, for some reason, called the garments after the merchants and called them banyans. Uh, in um, Holland, they were actually called Japanese gowns, which I think is perhaps more um, indicative of, of where the styles really came from. It's quite like a sort of Japanese uh, kimono. And they weren't normally worn outside, except in, in places like Bath in England, where, of course, people were going to and from um, the hot baths all the time. And so they were often in um, a state of semi-undress. And... Um, they were worn much more normally uh, during the day by men in the colonies, where one visitor reported that they were shocking clothes for gentlemen, which I, th I think they're rather lovely. So chintz became, it was one of those, it was in a way the victim of its own success because the demand was so great that it, local imitations started to be made. I mean, one could almost say that the Industrial Revolution took place because a means was needed for imitating 
chintz, both in um, spinning and weaving cotton and in dyeing it and printing it. No one ever discovered how to do the real chintz, uh, hand drawing and dyeing. But the European, especially in um, France and Alsace, they started to um, evolve methods of printing whereby you could print as complicated a pattern without having to import it from India. So these, um, a combination of prohibition and the availability of local um, imitations really sort of spelled the end, if you like, of the, of the chintz trend. You've been listening to part two of The Cotton Road. In the third and final part, Rosemary Krill will look at Indian muslins and the fine cashmere shawls that were worn with them. These were the next great fashion to be based on Indian imports to Europe. After the conclusion of her talk, Rosemary Krill takes questions from the audience. Rosemary's lecture was recorded live at the Mewa Textile Symposium on October 24, 2007. For more information on Mewa or our podcasts, please visit our website at www.mewa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.